0: Why China is supporting Russia, in what way it supports Russia, and uh, what's the consequence? As David Hume once said, our actions are directed more by feelings than by reasons. The communist ideology was given to the Chinese, by Russians, and from Russia. Mao thought the Hungarian revolution, he could use the opportunity to take the leadership from the Big Brother. In that time, actually, literally, uh, in all the Chinese documents, when they talk about the Soviet Union, they always Soviet big brother. 49.3% right. of Mr. Biden's 22 million followers are fake. As the only superpower, you have one job. Your job is to stop the war. Right. The Biden administration did not. Instead, they gave Ukraine Whatever weapon they could sing of.
1: Namaskar, hello and welcome to P. Guru's channel. I am your host Sri Ayer. After a gap of few weeks, we have with us Sasha Gong, and we're going to take a, a little bit of a step back and look at the Russia-China relationship, and also how China sees the future as well as the present in terms of you know which country is on the ascendancy, which one is uh, you know on the descendancy, and so on and so forth. This is perhaps a unique perspective that we are presenting, and uh, Sasha, being a China watcher for so many years, is in an excellent position to give us that view and perspective. So let's welcome Sasha Gong, Sasha. let's go again. The last one is doing great guns. We are we are doing extremely well. The the video is uh, really piqued the people's imagination. So let's hope that we have another gangbuster of a session. So Sasha, I'm going to start by putting up the PowerPoint presentation whenever you're ready for it. Maybe if you want to give a preamble before that, please feel free.
0: Yeah, well, uh, the war is the big item we all know. Now we have Ukraine and the Russia are having a major war which, you know, pushed the whole world to reorganize. And uh, for so far, you know, people paid mo- most attention to Russia and America, uh, Russia and Ukraine and the NATO, but not much attention was given to China and Russia. Why China is supporting Russia? In what way it supports Russia? And uh, what's the consequence for the future? And that's something I want to discuss. You know, I'm I'm no expert of Russia, but. I think I grew up in China and uh, I in a way I grew up in Russian literature and I'm in the same generation of the Chinese current leaders so I think I might be able to explain what their feelings what they think usually feelings uh well as as David Hume once said our actions are directed more by feelings than by reasons so I want to explain the reasons and uh, what the Chinese think.
1: That's a great start. And let us start by putting up the PowerPoint. So this is a slide one, Uh, Russia and China, Xi Jinping and, uh, uh, of course, uh, Putin. So Mm -hmm. let's uh, take it away.
0: Uh, Yeah. So and to understand that, I would like to talk a little bit about history to... to begin with, yeah. without history, we can't understand what whatever happens. So it's it's a Russia Chinese Russo-Sino relations. And well, let's drop the previous relations. Like I don't want to go back to the Qing Dynasty, Peter the Great, whatever. Let's start with the communist ideology. The communist ideology was given to the Chinese by Russians and from Russia. So Chairman Mao used to say that the October Revolution, the gunfight of October Revolution gave us, brought us Marxist landing lists and gave up communism. So that's how important, of course we all know, all the way up to its collapse, Russia was the big brother in the communist bloc. But China drifted away from Russia Before we talk about that, we also need to talk about what the the relationship between the two communist parties, the two communist giants. And first you see, after the Russian Revolution, sent a bunch of international communists, in that time they called in 1924, they Russian communists or Soviet communists set up a communist international called Kami that's the short term. And uh, several major Kami figures went to China. They went to China to help to organize the Chinese Communist movement. So in that, in that- When was this? Which year? 1920s. 1920, got it. The Chinese Communist Party was set up in 1921. So in the 1920s, 23, 24, at that time, you know, China had already overthrown the Qing Dynasty, China was a republic. The party heading the Chinese China Republic was KMT or Kuomintang. And at that time, Kuomintang was very pro-Russia and in a way pro-communism. So Communist Party of China and the leading party Kuomintang had some cooperation at that time for a few <coughs> years. And uh, so, Russia sent their expert to China. Uh, one of the major guys China sent was from India, whose name is Roy.
1: Roy, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah.
0: So he was he was one of the leading figures for Comintern in China. So, so one Roy, question:
1: Was uh-huh. Sun Yat-sen still alive when all this started in the Comintern, or was it uh, under Chang Kai-shek?
0: Oh yes, yeah, Sun Yat-sen was still alive. Sun Yat-sen died in nineteen. 19- 24, 25, the uh, 24, okay. I believe. Okay. And uh, but Sun Yat-sen initiated the the, the alliance. Chiang Kai-shek w- did not break up with the Communist Party until 1927. I
1: see. So
0: there are a few years of honeymoon time and uh, the communist people were very active in China. So they their goal, of course, is to turn China into communist. And the fast forward come to, uh, you know, after that, Chiang Kai-shek tried to crush the communists. The communists went to uh, the Long March and all this, the 30s. Fast forward to the Second World War, Japanese invasion. The Chinese communists were hidden in the rural areas, including Xi Jinping's father. That's the area Xi Jinping's father was one of the founders. In the end of the uh, Second World War, before the Japanese surrender, the Communist Party also throw their, throw their forces into the war. By the end of the war in August 8, 1945, you know, uh, one thing people may not remember is that the Soviet Union remained uh, its diplomatic relationship with Japan during the entire wartime. Unbelievable. They just did not want Japan to attack the Soviet Union from the east. So diplomatic relationship remained to the almost the last minute. It's well, after uh, the victory in Europe in August, 20, August 8, after Truman uh, bombed Japan, the atomic bomb, and the Soviet Union immediately sent its force to Manchuria, which is the northeast part of China, Japan uh, occupied Manchuria since 1931, so the Soviet Union sent its troops there and uh, robbed everything. They took away all the factories and they even took away railway railway trails that took back to Russia and wrecked the entire area. And when the Japanese surrendered a week later, in on August fifteenth. Uh, Japan surrendered. After Japanese surrendered Japan, the most, I would say, powerful uh, uh, Japanese troop was in the Northeast area. And that troops surrendered to the Russian army, the Russian Red Army. R- the Russians took away their weapons and everything and gave that to the com- to Communist China, the Communist Party. That was defunded that became the foundation of the Chinese Chinese took over. And not only the weapons, they also gave uh, some, well, the troops and uh, makes part of the Japanese troops join the communist uh, troops, including three very famous division formed by Koreans. You know, at that time, Korea was also Japan's uh, colony. So the Koreans had three divisions in in the Japanese army in the in Manchuria. And uh, that military force was transferred to the Communist Party, which later became a major part of the Korean War. When China sent its troops, it sent the Korean uh the Korean divisions first because, because they speak Korean.
1: Question. Uh, so at that point Korea was united, wasn't it? At the time of Second World War.
0: Uh, no, Korea was uh, part of Japan, was Japanese colony. Uh, 1945, when America and planned pro war period, and a captain in Mikasa's staff, and took a, simply took a pencil and said, "Well, in that case, we have to give the Soviet Union some part and remain some part." Just took a pencil and draw a line 38 parallel. That it's, you know, it's very hard to imagine how history de- developed and that's how history developed and he draw a line and that became the line that's still the, that is still the line today. It determined millions of people's lives. So the communists took the, took the weapon and forces and fought the KMT, a civil war in starting from Manchuria and all the way south. Stalin at that time, Joseph Stalin, wanted the Chinese to stop, stop at Yangtze River. So China could be from two, two nations. One would be headed by KMT and would be pro-America. The other part, the northern part would be pro-Russia. And Stalin did not want China to be that united, uh, to, to unite and it became his rival. Anyway, so when Stalin's order arrived, China Mao said no, and he Mao wanted to unite China, so he kept attacking and united China. So China became communist in nineteen forty nine, and the PRC was established on uh, October first, nineteen forty nine. So
1: and, one, my question, Sasha. Sorry, uh-huh. uh, this is the more critical part. So the KMT did not have the arms and ammunition to counter the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party? Is that what led to Chiang Kai-shek to uh, jump to Taiwan?
0: No, actually they did. They had all the American uh, equipment. You just think of what happened in Afghanistan or what's happening. America supplied them huge amount of weapons, huge amount. So how did they manage to lose it? Well, corruption and uh, loss of people's support. You know, for one thing, America has a special talent to support corrupt regimes who <laughs> claim to be democratic. That is a tragedy. That's another issue we can discuss. I'm not saying uh, America, well, Amer- I'm, I'm American. I'm all for America. The problem is that in terms of America, of uh, empire building or supporting, in terms of of international policy, America is still very naive, in a way. America is idealistic and naive. Their naivete drove America to do a lot of stupid things in the world. (laughs) What can I say? Including today, including what's happening today.
1: Yes. So let, let's get back to the uh, PowerPoint. So please continue. I'm sorry for the disruption.
0: Oh no 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 no. That's that, those are important discussions. And anyway, so when when China was first established, the Communist Party had no money, had no international relations. It was poor. It desperately need international support. So in that time, Mao, how ambitious, how ambitious he was. He was, he desperately needed the support of, of the Soviet Union. So Mao traveled to the Soviet Union, traveled to Moscow. Mao wanted money. And Stalin, on the other hand, Stalin wanted land, wanted, uh, well, whatever the imperialists wanted, you know. Uh, Harbors, ports, and uh, railway, whatever Stalin wants, all those things. Mao, of course, did not want to give, and uh, Stalin. So Stalin actually let Mao. Well, met Mao once and said, "Okay, let him stay," and refused to meet him again. And then guess Mao? What Mao did? Mao stayed in in Moscow, not leaving, for a couple of weeks, not leaving. Finally, Stalin had to move them, and then the Soviet Union gave China uh, 300 million US dollar, low, int- on, low or no interest, almost no interest loan for, for 300 million. At that time, it was huge money. Now today is nothing, yeah. right? So Mao got the money and went back to China and, it, and uh, Per Mao's request and Stalin's willing, the Soviet Union sent in all kinds of experts to China to rebuild China after the model of the Soviet Union. That was in the the, uh, early 50s. But at that time, you know, Mao at Mao, Mao's the ultra-nationalist in a way in Chinese. And Mao did, well, personally, he, he did not like Stalin. The two dictators, yeah, two dictators, never like each other in a way. So, and in that time, it's a very interesting piece of history if you want to go into the details. But we don't have that much time to go to the details. Anyway, so after Stalin's death and the Khrushchev, asked after the Stalinization in 1956, and Mao thought it was time for me to grab the leadership. Of or the communist world, so remember in uh, November I think in first in august nineteen fifty six the Polish workers had a riot uh, the, in Poland, and then later in November, the Hungarian people rebelled right and you know that's nineteen fifty six at that time. Mao thought the Hungarian revolution he could use the opportunity to take the leadership from the big brother. In that time, actually, literally, uh, in all the Chinese documents, when they talk about the Soviet Union, they always Soviet Big Brother. That's the exact word. It's not, well, (laughs) I'm using official documents. They call Big Brother. So Mao thought it was his time to become Big Brother. And uh, in the beginning, Mao actually supported the Hungarian rebellion, believe or not. He said, well, yes, we need to open up. Remember at that time, the Polish Gomułka went to power and Hungary and all this and Soviet tanks came in. And so Mao tried to set an example of openness, asked his people in ni- early 1957, say, hey, everybody speak up and uh, criticize us and uh, all the criticisms well, welcome. So, what happens is that people naively believe? Okay, Mao welcomes criticism. So many intellectuals did criticize, and uh, when Mao looked at these people, really criticized me, and then what happened is that he launched an anti-writers campaign in the summer of 1957, and. Uh, put millions of people in jail. Many were killed, millions. And a Chinese government admitted about 2.5 million, but from what we can witness, that would be a lot more. So so the Chinese intellectuals will crash and at that time, China tried to grab the leadership from the Soviet Union. So what happened is that China then launched a debate with the, the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, debated the Soviet Communist Party. China launched the attack first. They attacked Khrushchev. They attacked the secret report, which, you know, exposed uh, Stalin's crime. And they said the Soviet Union is going to the route of revisionism. That's the exact term the Chinese use. And uh, so Ch- China said, communist the communist movement should not go this route. We should follow uh, the original Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist even, Stalin's ideology. We should be more radical than less radical. So the Soviet, actually the call, Soviet then called the Chinese dogmatism. The, well, <laughs> that was a huge debate between uh, revisionism and the dogmatism. Of course, because of the power, the Soviet Union well control most of the communist parties in the world. Everybody went the Soviet way, except later one tiny country went away, that's Albania. So China and Albania, but the two lonely lonely forces and Albania using this because Soviet Union, you know, I guess, Soviet has had his Muslim problems and the Albanian is a Muslim country and the Soviet Union did not like it that much and it was a badly managed country, communist country. So Albania, for the price of going to support China, demanded lots of money from China and China satisfied their money demand a lot. That was the debate. I grew up in this debate. But one thing, you know, which uh, talking about all this background, the importance of today's leaders. Remember today's leaders, Xi Jinping, Li Keqiang, and almost everybody, that was their childhood. They grow up there and uh, they grow up shaped by the debate. And the Soviet Union was a daily word, daily occurrence to people. So what happened is it's a very interesting term and I can't find any uh, academic study or anyone wrote about it, but it explains a lot of today's China. You know, people in my generation, we grow up, my name Sasha is a Russian name because my, yes. my father gave me the Russian name and that was before I had my Chinese name. So that's my generation. And what happened since later, Mao launched the Cultural Revolution. In the Cultural Revolution, everything of culturally you know, music, anything traditional were well banned, everything Western, Music, books, and whatever. Everything was banned. If you go into a bookstore, you have 90% of the books are Chairman Mao's work. The other 10% are party works. That's all. That's literally what's in a bookstore. But you think of it, China was sort of a Confucius culture. It's a sort of a very, people are supposed to internalize their, their desire and the china chinese people kind of hold back that kind in the 1950 1950s when the soviet union had put its its influence in china lots of soviet literature and the music and uh, all sort of a cultural product went into china were introduced to china and translated into chinese you have to admit the russians writes well, the Russians write really well. The Russian composers are amazing. Russian music is amazing. So people who went through the 1950s, especially uh, were born in the 50s, and everybody had some, uh, well, lots of influence from Russia, culturally from Russia. So during the Cultural Revolution, when Mao banned everything, and to lots of people, To people who came from intellectual or, you know, sort of upper class background, Russian music, Russian literature, Russian culture became the only culturally enjoyable stuff to them. That's illegal as well, they're all banned. But for people, for upper class people, they are available. In a way, I grew up listening to like musicians like Tchaikovsky and all that. So you remember? How about Rachmaninoff? Uh, Rachmaninoff was not that welcomed, but some music was because because Rachmaninoff left left Russia in the nineteen twenties. Hmm. So he was kind of a considered traitor, but Shostakovich was very much available. Yeah,
1: Shostakovich, right, right, right. And, uh, and there's also, uh, there's also a Kors- pair, I'm trying to remember the name, there's a pair with a hyphen. Uh, Rimsky-Korsakov. Yes, Rimsky-Korsakov, yeah. right.
0: Yes, so all those are my childhood names, remember. So it just imagine my generation the entire generation I'm talking about Xi Jinping and all others we that's the bright spot of our youth
1: you know uh speaking of remsey korsikov in the <laughs> 1984 Olympics, I think it was <laughs> IBM uh, which had a very funny commercial based on that saber dance so what what they are showing is how fast the um what bobsled is running and 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 they show that one of the drivers is having a coca cola in his hands and uh-huh. then the last one is got hi mom as <laughs> 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 all this when they are going speeding down the bobsled very funny mm-hmm. ad
0: <laughs> yeah so but anyway so if you think of the whole generation of leadership a whole generation of chinese when they grow up, the whole world is grey or very dark, no colour. Mouse word has no color. The only colour in their spiritual life is Russian. That is something you know very few people dare to recognize today. Hmm. People don't want to talk about it. And uh, you know, there some sometimes they are ashamed. But one thing revealed what is that when Xi Jinping went to visit Russia. And reporters, you know, he was meeting with Putin and they gave a press conference and uh, well, reporters asked him, what kind of books you like, Russian books? He named two books. Well, I, I guarantee half of, or even most of Russian people would not know unless they grow under communism, the two very communist books. And one is actually written about the war in Ukraine. Hmm. in the 1920s and uh, that, yeah, that's, that book is like translated literally is how, how steel is forged. And uh, <laughs> every Chinese in our generation remembered many famous lines from that book. But the China, the Russians after the so after 1957, but they abandoned those things. <laughs> So there's some, you know, some things that, that's why Xi Jinping tried very hard to please Putin. When you see several times he he visited Russia, he was trying so hard to show he loves Russian cultures. He loves this, loves that. Although I don't think Xi Jinping is that well educated, but as I said, even you know if you come to from certain upper classes, that was you know Russian culture was the bright spot in your youth. So that explained a lot of what the Chinese leaders uh, think of Russia. Uh, and then the United States came in in 1971, 1972. And United States try, you know, Nixon's visit, and uh, they put a wedge, and not a wedge. Actually, the wedge was there. The split was there for a long time, and uh, so the Chinese suddenly discovered the United States of America. They so, wow, great! But culturally, I mean, say culturally, the Chinese. If you ask them to choose between, say, you choose between. Russian music, Russian songs, and a jazz. For example, the majority of Chinese would choose Russian music.
1: Yeah,
0: that's well. uh, Well, I'm both. I love. I love both. But perhaps I've been in the states for so long. Right. Right. right, right. We acquire
1: a new taste. Right. Right. Right.
0: Yes. But if you look at if you look at that the cultural background. So when United States came. Came into China, the United States actually swept the Chinese uh, by their feet. Uh, so, wow, that's a very rich, powerful country, great, great system, democracy, freedom, and that actually stirred up the Chinese imagination. Except one thing. Culturally, China, China has a long culture, Russia has a long culture. To I talk to my Russian friends and the Chinese friends. Culturally, Amer- the United States of America is a child. Compared
1: yes, to
0: old yes, countries. yes. And uh, one thing also, the U.S. had, it's very hard for the U.S. to relate to like my generation, Chinese and Russia, because in our lives under communism, our lives in that time are full of pain. You, you never, you always hear pain from Russian music, for example, Russian songs, Russian music, pain and desperation and love and very deep. And the Chinese appreciate that. America is sort of a present to an easy life.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Um, so that's some, that's some cultural understanding I think America true, needs true. to pay attention to. And uh, then Let's go to the next subject, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I have been talking a little too much on that part. <laughs> next slide up is uh, China and Russia in the age of globalization. You know, I well, of course, there are a lot of subjects to talk about for this. And uh, I just want to stress some a few things which are important to understand today's China-US and China-Russia relationship. Here is, um, you know, the Chinese has a reform starting from the late 1970s. The reform, they call the, a market reform. But China, one thing is, well, is the Chinese, the Chinese leadership, as I say, never, ever, ever wanted to take the route of democratic reform. They appreciate the free market system, but they think well they can control it better. And uh, uh, the Chinese upper classes, they don't trust ordinary people. And to the Chinese, to a lot of Chinese, if not the majority of Chinese leadership, they think to you know, if they'll vote, equals to someone who like their servant. It's a ridiculous thing. In a way, what you see in China is the Chinese is very, very controlled. And controlled in terms of, we take your economic development model, market e- economy, but we, we reject your political system and we also reject your many culture aspect. So what, what you see is today's China, is a very strange mix of that. And China in that time, I remember even in the 80s when the reform just started and the the Chinese appreciate more like Singapore or other models without democracy, economic development without democracy. And uh, culturally the Chinese said, we don't want to be westernized. Especially the Chinese Communist Party is that they don't want to be Westernized. And they come to Xi Jinping, you, you see that in recent years, what Xi Jinping did was Xi Jinping tried very hard to wipe out the Western Western culture influence. And he especially, and the people who are backing him, they don't want China to be Westernized culturally. It's very important because that comes to the comparison of Russia. If you look at Russia, the Russian communism, the Rus- Soviet Union collapsed in uh, December 26, 1991, right? But even before that, you know, when Gorbachev launched it's Glasnost in, 18, uh, yeah, yeah, in, uh, in 19, 1985, the Soviet Union did not, well, they were not that keen to adopt Western economic model, if we remember it correct. You yeah, see, yeah. empty shelf, but they are more keen at that time to Western political models and cultural models. In a way, if you look at Russia, what we know about Russia is that since Peter the Great, this early 18th century, Russia wanted so much to be part of Europe. Yes. and uh, Peter the Great ordered his entire court to be Westernized or and Frenchized in a way. Cut their beards and do this, do that, and we need to look more Western. So, eventually, if you look at uh, uh, Catherine the Great, look his court and every the taste. Inter- well, she's German, of course. She was German, but the entire court taste it's more European then,
1: yes, and. Yes. Uh, even Romanovs are all Germans, right? Romanovs are all Germans.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, they're all Germans. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, uh, the, the way, if you look at Russia, Russia culturally, Russia really wants to be part of Europe. And yes. in Russia, I, I remember I read I, as books I read is that if you tell Russians they're Asian, you'll be very angry for a long time. Well, I don't think they're angry anymore because Europe changed. Russia also changed. But
1: So if, for... you, if you draw a line, if you draw a line somewhere like where the Asian part of Russia and the Western part of Russia meet, some sort of a line, in terms of population as well as uh, size, do you, do you have some numbers for us?
0: Oh, I I you know I can only grab from my mind, but the majority of the population is in, in the European part. Mm-hmm. If you think of the uh, line between Asia and the Europe is the Euro Mountains.
1: Yeah.
0: And so the majority of the population, especially the majority of the Russian population are in the European line, U- European side. And also uh, the Asian side more Siberia. You have other you know, nations there anyway. But for a long time, Russia wants to be part of Europe. So if you look at China, Russia's reform since Gorbachev and China's reform since Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese focus on economy, the Russia focus on political reform. So if you look at even before the collapse of Soviet Union after uh, 1989. The Eastern European change, Russia held its first demo, true democratic election in March 1990. And uh, if you look at that election, well, I talked to a few people who got elected. It's a true democratic election, which means in a lot of places, the communist the communists, uh, leadership were kicked out. So the most most important one is actually the election in in Lithuania. And in Lithuania, March, Lithuania was at that time part of Russia. But in March 1990, non-communist parliament, or in that time called Supreme Council, was elected. And uh, they elected their first first head of state, Whitehouters Landsbergis. Who you know I interviewed, uh, and I really liked. I had a long conversation with him. Anyway, so he he was a musician, an anti-Soviet musician. So under his leadership, immediately after the new parliament was sworn in, they voted on independence, and everyone except six uh, representatives voted for independence. That six for the communists. Yeah, the six were communists. <laughs> uh, so that became the first brick fell in the, so of the Soviet empire. So if you look at compare Russia and China, you know, Russia, because part of that, because Russia tried to be part of Europe and Russia took a very radical step to be democratic. And uh, e- economy, not much. So that's why it explains why Chinese economy took off because of, you know, in a way that it's a different issue. We can talk about it in a, yes, uh, yes, otherwise, yes. you know, otherwise it will take a whole day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah. Russia, and China, if you look at whole globalization run, China took advantage of globalization and uh, build itself as the second largest economy in the world from a very poor country. And the Russia, on the other hand, if the economy failed miserably, remember in the 1990s during the Yeltsin time and, uh, well, the Western economists, one of the, that uh, I actually knew, was Jeffrey Sachs from Harvard, and they told Russia to have the shock therapy, which means you privatize everything and you one step, you came from socialism to capitalism. So what happened is that that destroyed Russia's economy. Remember in that time, and Russia used to produce this or so that in Eastern Europe, and now they have to, in that time, I remember in the 1980s, uh, ruble to US dollar, it was um, like uh, 0.65 ruble to one dollar. Wow. It was you saw, sort of a man-made, because they could not really exchange the money. So right, they, right. the Russian government set it high. But ruble fell like hell. And uh, the whole economy failed. So in that time, the Russians, I talked to a Russian economist, as well, what shock therapy? It's shock without therapy. <laughs> uh, lots lot of people lost their pension, lost, you know, people lost a lot, some people, lots of people lost everything. That actually brought back to the part, the Communist Party, which became Yeltsin's most powerful opponent. And uh, without the United States, without the help from the United States to boost up Yeltsin, he would lost the 1960s. 19, 19 election and communists would have won or nationalists, you know, something like that. So if you look at Russia and Russia when Putin got, because of the economic failure, Russia, you know, took its, well, in that time, Russia had all this oligarchy because during the shock therapy, uh, the state is open for looting. Uh, oligarchy you know oligarchs. they just took the state money that's tons of stories that if anyone's interested there are many many books to read how the Russian economy shock therapy failed, how a very small group of people robbed the country, looted the country, looted the nation and many people have, well lost men especially the pension the, the pensioners. Anyway, so when Putin got back, he had no not much choice but to you know uh, turn into Russia's strengths. Like, well, first thing of course, it's Russia. If Russia may not have the industry much, but Russia has natural resources, gas, minerals, and uh, land, which means grain. So Russia became the Russian economy. Totally rely on oil and gas and uh, mineral and and, and uh, you know that that became Russia, and in a way I think rush the Russians are very frustrated for not being able to join Europe. You know Putin wants us to join NATO. <laughs> of course, you you know he was rejected, and well, the funny thing of Russia-China relationship at that time was China, well, uh, the, the generation, Xi Jinping, especially Xi Jinping, they tried very hard to please Russia. They still, in a way, the Chinese thought Russia was the big brother there. And uh, Russia was culturally big brother and uh, historically all this. So if you look at in the past 10 years, Xi Jinping went to Russia a few times and the uh, Putin went to China, and the attitude of the two people, it's also widely reported, and Putin always behaved like his big brother, and Xi Jinping tried very hard to please him, until last time, until February this year during the Olympics. And if you look at the pictures and all that came out, Putin, Xi Jinping looked like the big brother, Putin looked like he's begging for something. It, it's just very, very amazing when I watched all this. And if you look at Chinese, the second largest economy of, of, in the world, China, it's not only the size of the economy, it's the capacity of production. And uh, what China desperately need today, China needs energy, China needs grain. China is 30%. 30% of China's food rely on import. And China needs minerals because China, well, just China doesn't have that much. And that's exactly what, what Russia had. So I think the smart uh, foreign policy principle, like Henry Kissinger and America policy, should be you know drive a wedge between russia and china i'm talking about american interest i'm not talking as a chinese i'm talking as yes, a yes yes yeah. so in a way when in that well if you include russia into the west into europe or uh, into the west i think that's what exactly uh mr trump president trump thought well we need to we need to get Russia to our side. Otherwise you'll we'll get to China side. And the most stupid thing, in my view, for the US to do is to push China, push Russia to the China side, which is what happened. And uh, I'm speaking this affectionately as the American and I want my country to I to be well to to take the leadership. Yeah, go ahead. So one question, Sasha, what is it
1: that Biden hates about Russia? Because right from the moment the Democrats came to power, they have been in a very, very anti-Russia policies. Why did Biden hate Russia so much?
0: In my view, it's actually, it's not even about money. People always, always say, follow the money. Here, I would say, follow the scandal. Think of since 2016, what we see is the statement prior here, the Democrats, Hillary Clinton and Democrats has been building a rhetoric, a hatred towards Russia. This comes from their hatred to Trump. So Russophobia is something that you can easily whip up. Think of it, remember Obama, remember Hillary in that time, how friendly they were to Russia. Yeah. And if you trace it back, why the 180-degree turn?
1: Right.
0: The only reason, the only very apparent reason, reason, it's a twisted psychology. They have to justify it. They, ha- they have to justify the Russia gate. They have to justify, they spent three years to damage to a president, to undermine the vote of American people using Russia gate and they have to paint Russia as a villain without that they don't have a taste now so what you're
1: saying is the 2017 and 2018 the first two years of Trump era was heralded by uh, a stubborn opposition on part of the Democrats who tried to make it look like Russia helped Trump steal the election again my perception I could be wrong. But I'm just saying that, is that what you think happened?
0: Exactly, exactly. I think, you know, these people for their selfish reasons, for politics, they are willing, they have been willing to destroy the relationship between the United States and the major power in the world in order to, you know, justify their what whatever they need. And uh, it's a very sad thing and well, we saw that in medieval time, we just, you know, it's very, think of it, especially since the Second World War, after that, with all this international cooperation, people always try to do diplomacy based on reason, rational diplomacy. And uh, but a lot of time they fail to do so. But at this level, to that extent, to destroy a a relationship with a major country. I have never seen it. I have never seen this.
1: Yeah, and so so it's, a, it's the ego of a few individuals, um, bonfire of vanities, if you will. I mean, the, if, if you can just take those people out,
0: it could be a much more realistic world at this point of time. Yeah, more than vanity, actually. I think, well, fundamentally, they hate it people's choice they thought you know in that way I think they're more cl- they're closer to the leadership in China they're closer to the leader- leadership in Chinese thing they don't think average average America their vote is carried the same weight as their own vote so average America the rednecks elected Trump they hated that fact they hated that you know, People can so, democracy can so easily take the power from their hand. They must destroy it. From all these people, they determined to destroy America democracy, destroy America's legal system, to destroy America's relationship, and to reshape the world just for their political needs and psychological needs. This is a psychopath.
1: So uh, Sasha, tell me this, you know, it's okay for the Democrats to cry uncle about the election being stolen. And when the Republicans do it, they seem to put it down with disdain. How come? I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it?
0: I don't have any any concrete evidence in my hand uh, to have to speak as a journalist. I don't have it. But, you know, just to see circumstantial evidence, Yeah. You know, The first time, 2016, 64 million people voted for Trump. Second time, 75 million. I don't see any president in history got 11 million more votes in their second term. Mr. Obama got less. Nobody got that many more. Ah, I think except Reagan.
1: That's way back,
0: except Reagan. Yeah, way yeah. back, and compelled nineteen. I, I forgot the actual number, but I think Reagan reached to that number. Uh, Nixon may have something close and something like that, but it's a huge, huge increase. And I don't think Biden, who campaigned from his basement and uh, came out, and a few hundred people follow him, would get that many votes. It's like you know. Recently, what we saw in his uh, uh, Elon Musk, Elon Musk, the investigation of the their Twitter accounts, forty-nine point three percent of Mr. Biden's twenty-two million followers are fake. <laughs>
1: fake I did a I did a monologue on this with all the data. It's doing extremely well. Please go ahead. You're right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and remember trump with all the suppression from twitter trump has more than 80 million followers it's impossible statistically it, how come so well if you ask me why I so ask those people why you know i'm pretty sure the election is stolen
1: so one 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 small clarification uh, sasha mm-hmm. Before he became president, Biden's account was Joe Biden, and that had only 3.5 million subscribers. So, so it's not even a contest. Let's not even go there. It's not even a contest. You're not in the same universe. Forget about
0: the right. election. Right. Exactly. So, you know, things have to make sense. And uh, in my life lessons that if something doesn't make sense. It must be a different reason. So we have to look at those. But yes, anyway, yes. so let's so get back to our. Sport, let's get back nine. to our.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, the next one that the word order. We are talking about the word order in the eyes of Putin and Xi. I have been studying, you know, both men's uh, speech speeches. It's quite interesting. And um, what does Putin see? In the world, have you read uh, his speech before the war?
1: Uh, right no, before the no, it, I, I, I you're talking about the presidium thing.
0: It's a 55 minutes TV speech. He explained the war to the Russian hmm. people.
1: Okay, okay.
0: And something struck me, his tone. Something struck me, you know. Usually, a national leader before war when you speak. You sort of uh, instigate people, you you, you, you sort of uh, chest pounding, look like a big guy and uh, uh, optimistic and that sort of thing. No, Putin's speech sounds like a complaint. That actually interests me a lot. He sounds like the West treats his nation and himself unjustly and uh, all this, the complaints it's a very odd tongue for a leader who's about to launch a war. I'm not saying the war is, I think the war is, war is a stupid thing. I always think whatever, most war are very stupid things to do. But the tongue he talked about, well, he talked about like, like uh, he said he was correcting the, uh, the mistake made by uh, the communists, you know, in a way, lots of people now, you know, in the West, ignorant people compel Putin that he's Stalin, his Hitler, and um, I actually I'm interested to know if anyone, any major journalist or something, you know Putin was very anti-communist, and the people said <coughs> he tried to go back to Stalin. No, he was trying to to go back to Alexander the Great. <laughs> no, I'm not Alexander, you know, Russian, Alexander first, mm-hmm. Alexander I would say, the one who established uh, the Holy Alliance in Europe after the Napoleon war. Anyway, that's, that's another Russian history uh, lesson, well, I'm not getting into. And Putin is a, very much a nationalist, like most world leaders, they got to be, right? But the way he talked about one thing, he talked about the, the Soviet Union. You see, Soviet Union was supposed to be a republic. He said, well, you have different countries and supposed supposed to be a federation. But it was not a federation. It was, it was a central government, an empire. So in that time, you look at what the Russians, the Soviet government did. If you look at other former Soviet states. Soviet Union, because Russia is so vast, so the Soviet central government tried to, well, actually did cut small pieces or sometimes large pieces of land to all this republic to make them look bigger, make Soviet Union look like a more balanced. And especially after the second world war, Belarusia russia and, uh, and the Ukraine, you know, the, when the UN started, um, Russian insist to have three votes, Russia, Russia and, uh, and the and Ukraine, and so Russia needs to boost its the size of those com- th- those countries, right? So Russia gave the part of Poland, which Russia, uh, Stalin and Hitler made a pact, and the Russia took half of Poland from Poland, and then later Russia gave part of uh, gave very vast major part of East Prussia to, to, uh, to, to Poland, to compensate Poland. And that was actually a very brutal move after the second world war. I wonder why no people, nobody was writing about it because they just drove away. the ethnic cleanse the German population in that area. And well, anyway, I'm not getting into that as well. So they gave Western part of Poland to Ukraine, the Eastern part of Poland to Ukraine. They also gave Crimea, 1954, to Ukraine. Uh, the Crimea actually was, well, was taken by Pojangin to Catherine the Great, for Catherine the Great, right? And it was, it was not Russian, it was Tartar. So the Russians actually did the ethnic cleansing in Crimea uh, to move the entire Tatar nation to Siberia, and took that land. And uh, then it became major Russian. One of the one of the butchers who did Russia's work and killed a lot of Tatars was a Hungarian guy called Bela Kun. Anyway, that. Well, that guy was later shot by Stalin anyway. So it's, it's a <laughs> lot of very, very bloody history. Very, very bloody history. And the sad things that I think American diplomats and Americans largely don't know that history. Well, in, in my way, I'm a historian educated in China. I have to read lots of those histories and that's also in my interest. So, And this Russian, this war, I brought back lots of memories to me. I just think, Jesus Christ, I read that history. I read this history. (laughs) Anyway, so in Putin's eyes, when, come back to it, Putin thought he was a Westerner. He wanted to be part of Europe, but he was rejected. And uh, in Xi Jinping's eyes, it's also, you know, that's where they met. Xi Jinping, he want to resume Chairman Mao's dream. He wanted to be that big brother. In whatever a new alliance, in the new communists, a non-communist, third world, whatever you name that, he wants to be the big brother now. So in Xi Jinping's eye, Xi Jinping said, well, China for 40 years, have Chinese economy, China has been going towards the Western type of economy. For too long. Now let's get back. Let's get back to communism. So he's very dogmatic. And uh, in this way, the Ukraine, the war, Russian was driven out by the West. In the war, Xi Jinping has an opportunity to become Russia's big brother. And then now he's doing that. That's how Xi Jinping sees the new world order. The world order well, and Russia, on the other hand, Russia, I think Putin now doesn't mind if Russia became part of Asia.
1: One, one question in all this, uh, Sasha, do you think Putin invaded Ukraine at the instigation of China, or was it the other way around?
0: I don't think China has a, had a role in it. My hunch, I, of course, you know, later, uh, historians or investigators may find more, but, but I don't think China needs that because China had a lot of investment in Ukraine. And uh, if you look at Ukraine and China's relationship, and also that was neglected by by almost the entire media after. Ukraine gained its independence. Ukraine developed a very cosy relationship with China. Yes, and it, yes. You see, Ukraine has besides Russia, the uh, Ukraine has the largest number of nuclear physicists and weapons yes. specialists. Yes. So if you think of if you check, you'll see how many of those specialists are now working in China. Or have been working in China. Ukraine also sold China its first aircraft carrier, scrap metal, I think. It was <laughs> sold it to, as scrap metal and China built based on that. China got the technology so and so. built its first uh,
1: aircraft carrier. What we are seeing is a very interesting situation in the sense, you know, uh, Ukraine gives away all its nuclear missiles to Russia in exchange for a non-aggression treaty, which Mm -hmm. Russia broke. But after it did that, it went and built the army, navy, and air force, at least in a big way, because they had all the designs for China, which now hates US. And now that Mm -hmm. Russia has invaded Ukraine, US has gotten back to helping Ukraine defend itself i i i'm i'm losing my mind
0: here oh, i know every every <laughs> sane people would lose their mind and also uh here comes india you know uh, i i think prime minister modi refused to condemn russia yes and and uh india rely on russia for its weapon systems and my right 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 So,
1: um, India has majority of its weapon system from Russia, especially the serious stuff, the tanks, the submarines, uh, MiG fighter aircraft. So they they can't wean themselves off of Russia so easily. And uh, they've tried this piecemeal, like they went and bought some from the French, but putting all together, the Lego blocks don't fit. That is where the challenge Mm -hmm. is for India
0: it's very mind boggling you're, you're looking you're looking at a new world order is forming and that's come to our last slide then
1: yes yes yes
0: yeah um, a multipolar world and if you think of it for very long time after the second world war you have two, you have two superpowers soviet union and america and they compete and soviet union failed and after that, more than three decades, the United States was the only superpower. The United States almost could do whatever you know, could promote its own foreign policy anywhere. Foolishly, I think the United States did not use that opportunity that well. After September 11th, I, I'm okay with the Afghanistan war, and it, it's right to you know take out take out the terrorists. But Iraq, I don't get it. And uh, remember, uh, you know, before the Iraq war, I had the conversation with Paul Wolfowitz, the designer of the of the Iraq war. He said there are three reasons to launch the war. First, Iraq has oil. Has land and has mine because Iraq has, unlike other uh, Arab nations, Iraq has a relatively better education system. So I said that's. You're no talking about to- Jerry
1: Bremer. You're talking about talking to Jerry Bremer. Who were you talking? No, no, about? no,
0: no, no. Paul Wolfowitz.
1: Oh, Paul, okay, okay. Paul Wolfowitz. Got it, got it. Got
0: it. Yeah, it's well. I had the dinner with him. <laughs> in a friend's house. Anyway, that was before the war. I said, that's no reason. And you, you can't parachute the democracy to any country, right? have to have some foundation. Anyway, we stupidly got involved in orders, And then at that time, we needed China as an ally. So what we did was we destroyed our own industries. We rely on China with almost everything. Now this is what we are facing. When foolishly, we again push Russia to the arm of China. Now, that's a very peculiar thing I always thought. A few weeks before the Ukraine war uh, was launched, the Biden government said, oh, Russia will attack Ukraine. Russia will attack Ukraine. We have information. And everybody thought, why, it's foolish. Anyway, but I'm sure they have, Uh, real intel. At that time, as the leader of the free world, as the only superpower, you have one job. Your job is to stop the war.
1: Right.
0: The Biden administration did not. Instead, they gave Ukraine whatever weapon they could think of. And uh, with the new $40 billion aid, Ukraine, now America had given Ukraine more weapons, well, more money than whatever Russia spent in military spending uh, in 2021.
1: Hmm.
0: That's strange. What, yeah. very strange. So I would say, who's making money? Who's that? well, that's that's beyond the point. But why? Because American diplomats, I would say all diplomats I, I knew who experienced the Cold War, wanted to, hey, ceasefire, ceasefire, don't fight. Let's do that, otherwise the world will be in fire. Somebody stupid who, you know, may get us into the Third World War, poke the eyes to the polar bear, which had, who has 6,000 nuclear warheads.
1: True, true. Well, a lot of, uh food for thought. And uh, I think you did a fantastic job, you know, covering this entire relationship of three big countries. And now India is becoming another one where I'm also listening, uh, hearing now that after the latest meeting in, in Tokyo between Biden and, and Modi, first US offered um, 500 million as aid for uh, arms for uh, uh, India. And now they have upped it to 4 billion, 4. So, I, I don't know what's what's happening there and you India's annual budget for arms is 40 billion. So, if they want to supplant one year's budget, that's the number that you have to start with and, and I don't know what, where things are going to lead but Sasha, thank you so much. We are in a multipolar bilateral world where each country wants to do its own uh, agreement with the other countries Again, these things can't last long. We have to wait and see how this plays out. At the end, you will always have one superpower or more than one. We have to wait and see if China is going to be able to you know, withstand its own internal upheavals that are going on. What I hear now, I don't know how it's true or not, whether it's true or not, whether Xi Jinping is going to be left standing in in uh, by the time the, the, the session comes where he's like, hoping to become... You know, president for life, or or whatever, yeah. boss for life, general secretary of CCP for life, and it you have will to wait and see.
0: September.
1: September, so it's not very far away, and yeah. uh, so we'll wait and see. But Sasha, thank you so much, and uh, viewers, if you like this program, please do like, share, and subscribe to our channel. And if you uh, think that there was value in this, please do feel free to donate to us by clicking on the super thanks button. Thank you. Namaskar.
0: Thank you. Bye.